And uh, while you're doing that, I know the kids went out and so forth, and uh, we'll uh, get squared away here this morning. Matthew, uh, we've been, uh, I introduced last week to us a new uh, a study here uh, on the Gospels and us, the church, the body of Christ, us, you and I today. And uh, really with the goal and with the mindset of just looking at them at the Gospels in a very treetop overview manner and then pulling in, trying to uh, have you see where even the Apostle Paul will acknowledge some of what the Gospel is presenting. And, and again, Romans 15, uh, the things that are written aforetime are written for our learning not our obedience, but to learn them, to look at them, to understand them, to look into things. To, Paul will make that assumption. I, I, I think I showed you, like in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, and that's that reference back into Genesis 1, especially verse 3, that's where he does that, where the Apostle Paul really looks at you and I, looks at the church, uh, looks at the body and says, you guys need to know and understand the Old Testament. Again, for our learning, not for our obedience, because that's Israel's program and so forth, but for our, to understand that. You ought to understand why God gave Israel such restrictive uh, commands and, and discussions. And I told you, Matthew, right? <laughs> Look over 1 Corinthians 10. I give you that handout in the today's reference and... Uh, uh, it's a, uh, it's a, just a kind of a, we might go here, okay? <laughs> because things, you know, you, you get thinking about things. If you look at 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I would that ye should not be ignorant. Six times he talks about ignorant brethren. Each of the six times it's very significant doctrine issues in the life of a believer. Here, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock. Notice it's a capital R, okay? That followed them and that rock was Christ. Now, that's a quote out of Deuteronomy, Okay? In Deuteronomy, he does not tell them who the rock is. Do you know who tells you who the rock is? Paul does. He, doesn't, he says the rock, capital R in Deuteronomy, but he doesn't say who it is. Paul says that's Christ. But what should I know? I should know all that stuff going back there. I don't have to, I'm not obeying it. I'm just understanding it. Now, if you look at verse 6, now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And then Paul draws in verse 7, 8, 9, 10, all of these examples. He goes back into Exodus, into Numbers, and into Deuteronomy. He goes all back through that. And he says, you see what Israel did when they followed the lust of the flesh and the outcome of it? Verse 11, now all these things happened unto them for our ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now, example and insample are different. An example is out, outward, X, outside. An insample is what's going on inside you, E-N, in you, see? 
in you is a sample of not living in the life of, uh, of the flesh, but rather living the life of Christ. And that's what he's trying to get home with the Corinthians here. But he uses Israel as that illustration of, do you see? Here they are. They've had all of everything provided for them in Christ. And what, what did they do? They still went after lusting the flesh. And you know what you're doing at Corinth? You got all this in Christ, and you're over here living and lusting after the flesh. So knock it off. Grow up. That's a little later, okay? Sometimes I don't. I now come back to Matthew. So when we think about the Gospels, really there's some things in the Gospels that we have to be very aware of. The last time we talked about how you know there's four Gospels, the four branch statements, the four behold statements, the fourfold picture of the cherubs, the, the four seraphims that have those likenesses of, of the king, the lion, the man, the ox, the servant, and then you have God and in, in pictured in the eagle. So that's why you know there's four, not five. Why there's not one, there's four, because you've got this fourfold prophetic scripture viewpoint of the Messiah, of Christ. So Matthew lines up with that, with that behold your king. And you see that as we start here in verse 1. By the way, the number 4 is the number of earth. That's when earth was created was the fourth day. It's an interesting thing. Here we are, 4. So these gospels are talking about four different kind, different perspectives of the Messiah the one who's going to come back and establish Israel and her plan and purpose of God in the earth. Matthew is going to picture him as the king. Mark is going to picture him as the servant. And in the servant, we want to know what the servant is going to be able to do the work. Will, they, will he be able to carry out the full? So in Mark, the word is and, and immediately the key words. In Matthew, we want to know what the king says. Here's the official proclamation of the king. Luke presents him as man, the son of man, the kinsman redeemer. And in Luke, we see how he feels, how, did he fe how he went through things. He, by the way, in Luke, he's the intelligent man. It's very interesting. And then in John, here he is. He is the son of God. He's God. He's Jehovah. And there's seven I am statements that he makes in John that proves that. We'll see them when we get to John, Okay. <laughs> But the thing is, is why, you know, why, well, the author of your book is divine. That's first of all. Second of all, he's got a picture that he's portraying, and you and I come along today in the age of grace. By the way, the four cherubs that sit around the, the throne room, and they protect and magnify the glory of God. There was a fifth cherub that covereth who fell, and that's you and I. We take that position in that, in that issue, and we'll see that in a couple of weeks as well. It's very, very unique here. What's going to happen? So we come to Matthew. And in Matthew, here's what the king says. By the way, the writer of Matthew is Matthew. That was brilliant, wasn't it? All right? I'm going to send all of you a bill, okay? All right? But Matthew was a tax collector. He is what they call a publican. He's a Jewish man who works for the Roman government, and he is hated by his own people because he's working for the man. So they don't like him. But he's a tax collector. So as a tax collector, what do you need to know? All things government. So he's going to talk. The language of Matthew is very legal. It's very technical. It's very governmental. You'll see in Mark, 
you got Matthew. Well, I got to do this because I'm thinking about it. Look at Mark 1. Just, just real quick, Mark 1. Look here at verse 12, just real fast. Mark 1, 12. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. By the way, it's only Mark that tells you there were wild beasts there. All right? No, none, the other ones don't. But you see that now, verse 14. Now after that, John was put in. You see how Mark just covers two verses over the temptation of Christ? Now come to Matthew 4. Matthew chapter 4. The temptation of Christ starts in verse 1 and goes all the way down to verse 11. Why? Because we've got to know what's going on with the king. And we're going to have the king talk. By the way, Luke 4, here's the man. Luke chapter 4. If you look over at Luke 4, Luke 4, it starts in verse 1 and goes all the way down to verse 13. Why? Because we need to know how he felt as he was going through that and what his thinking was and what the process is. By the way, come on over to John. John. Guess what? There's no temptation recorded in John. Why? Because you, you can't tempt God. So when you come to Matthew 1, we're, we, we just, again, I just want to do a big overview. I know the overhead, I know the page on the thing looks full. I had to do that to fill it up. Otherwise, it would be only a few verses for you. But I just want you to get the tone, the flavor of it, and we'll, talk, we'll bring some things in. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of man. For the very first time in Scripture, we are introduced to the name Jesus Christ. Prior to this, he is not known that way. He's known as Lord, Jehovah, God, Lord God, Jehovah the Son. He, that's, he's never, now we are introduced to Jesus Christ. But who is he? He's the son of David. That's interesting. There's the king, first king. But then he's also the son of Abraham. There's the promise of the land and the kingdom. David is the promise of a king. Abraham is the promise of the land, the kingdom, and then the blessings that are going to flow out of that. So instantly, what do we have? We have a proclamation of Jesus Christ as the rightful ruler, the rightful king over the nation of Israel. He's the king. If you look at verse 6, And Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon. And so, we're, so now you have everything in Matthew is going to shout, here's the king. That's why the miracles that are done in the book of Matthew, by the way, they are dispensational in nature. Okay, if I don't say that, Matthew is a transitional book. We're, le we're coming out of the law and the prophets, and now we're going to be pressed into this preaching of the kingdom is at hand. The law and the prophets and Psalms and all that took the kingdom and promised it for the future. With John the Baptist, uh, look over at Luke. I'll give you the verse. I'm, I'm quoting so you see it. Luke 16, 16. Luke 16, 16. You, there's some verses as we go along here I'm going to give you. You've got to remember these when you're thinking about the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. For your own protection, not to win an argument, but for your own. Luke, Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, what time? John, the Baptist. The kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. 
So Matthew is transitioning out of the law and the prophets and into the preaching of the kingdom of God. That's very interesting. So Matthew is going to carry a, a, by the way, the law and the prophets aren't done away with. The Lord says, I didn't come to destroy them. I came to what? Fulfill them. So it doesn't replace that. It's just now the focus of ministry is moving. And John the Baptist, he's the one doing that, setting that forth. The Lord comes in and he says, okay, here we are. And off he goes. And what what Matthew does is it gives that dispensational picture. That's why, by the way, that's why the temptation in, Genesis, in Matthew 4 is in a different order than Luke. See? It's in, a, it's in a kingly order, a dispensational order for the nation of Israel. And in Luke, it's for the, the first John, the, the love of the world set up and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. That's how man looks at it. So it's very significant in all of that. It's interesting here. He starts... Verse 22, Matthew 1, 22. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And that's, again, Isaiah 7, verse 15, or verse 14. Look over at chapter 2. Chapter 2, we have the wise men. This is not recorded in Mark or Matthew or Luke or John. The wise men aren't there. It's only here. If you look at uh, chapter 2 and verse 15, verse 14, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. So the wise men are not at the nativity scene in, in Nazareth, Bethlehem, sorry. They're, they're later down in, in Nazareth. Say the little young child. He's at least she, he's at least two years old, if not a little younger, because of the edict of Herod, verse fifteen, and and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, "Out of Egypt have I called my son." That's Hosea eleven. See, why is this stuff being done? So it would be what fulfilled of what the prophetic scriptures said. Look down at verse twenty three. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. See, so the issue here, Matthew becomes this natural bridge out of the Old Testament and into something new that's transpiring in and within the nation of Israel. It's a natural movement. It's a natural bridge. So when you come back to Matthew 1, what do we learn? Here's the genealogy of who? Of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we get a genealogy here. And the genealogy here in the first 17 verse, uh, verses here establish the royal legal rights to the throne of David. And really, the royal rights to the issue of being the son of Abraham. But I want you to notice something. Look down at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. I'm sorry, verse 16. And begat, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Do you, you see that verse? By the way, Luke, Mark, there's no genealogy. We don't care where the servant came from. We just need to know, can he do the work? How many, if, you have a, if you've ever had anybody do work for you, 
What are you looking for? References. We don't care that they were born in Chicago or born over here in Mississippi. We just want to know what. Can they do the work? Luke, we need a genealogy. Why? Because he's going to become the kinsman redeemer. And we need to see the humanity connection. God never had a beginning. So there's no genealogy. He's ever from everlasting to everlasting. He's always there. See, so there's why, the portraits that are being painted. So the first 17 verses, we have the genealogy of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. And from verse 18 down to verse 25, we see the divine right to the throne and to the kingdom. We see his birth. And guess what? His birth was a natural birth. We got babies running around here. We got babies on the way. You, you know what? That's a natural thing. What happens? Mom has baby. Mom does this. Whatever it is, it's a normal thing. See? Verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus, Jehovah Savior, Redeemer of Israel. Verse 25, um, Well, where did Emmanuel go? 23. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. What's he going to do? He's going to dwell with Israel. John 1, he came into his own. What is he his own. Israel, he came there. Matthew, by the way, ends. Come over to Matthew 28. Look at verse 20. Look at what he ends here well, how he ends. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am, what? With you always, even unto the end of the world. Emmanuel, what is it? God with us. How does it end? I'm with you always to the end of the earth. Matthew ends the way he begins. So from Matthew 1 to Matthew chapter 28, it's all kingly, kingly. It's all dispensational. Here's Israel's king. Here's Israel's future redeemer. Here he is. And here's what he says. Now, Matthew, if you come over to chapter 9, just so you see the verse I mentioned a minute ago, Matthew 9 and verse 9. Matthew, the man, the one that wrote the book, he is the right one to write this book. Matthew 9, 9, and as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. See, Matthew, what is he? A tax collector. He's sitting there, he's taking the collect, the tax, and he's going to, he's, he has, he's going to speak. And he's going to look at the issues of, he, uh, as a government official, here, what do we need? We need a memo from the king, and here's what the king said. And that's what Matthew does. Come over to Luke 5, just draw a contrast for you. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Luke 5, verse 27. And after these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. 
And he left all, rose up, and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. So Matthew had named Levi. See? Levi is the Jewish name for Matthew. Same guy. But notice how Luke gives, Luke gives you, verse 29, the human touch of Levi. What did Levi do? He didn't just get up and follow him. That's what Matthew 9 said. He did what? We had a, man, we ate. Boy, don't we like to eat? <laughs> What's for lunch? You know, boom. What's for dinner? That's what Luke, so Luke brings in the human touch. But when you come back to Matthew, Matthew, the king, what does a king do? He's the lawgiver. He's the enforcer of the law. It's a, he's the lawgiver. He's the king in the midst of Israel. And when you begin to think about Matthew, and you begin to think about how things go, and especially in chapter 1. Just, man, we'll get as far as we get, and we just rejoice in it, I guess, okay? Look at Matthew 1. In the genealogy, there's something you need to notice, I think, that's of great import, and we talk about this from time to time in the month of December. But notice, you've got verse 6, And Jesus begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon. Verse 7, And Solomon begat. And then it begins to run through Solomon's boys, verse 12. And after, and after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathoth. You see that? Jeconias. And then it's going to work down through Jeconias to Jacob, verse 16, to Joseph. You see that? But there's a problem with Jeconias. Come back with me to uh, Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22. And 1 Chronicles 3, Jeremiah 22. You see, there, there's an issue here, Jeremiah 22. And it's a, something you, you have to catch, Jeremiah 22. <clears throat> In Jeremiah 22, Jeremiah is given the, the, the prophetic uh, scriptures concerning them going into Babylon. Okay, that's what Matthew 1.13 said. And after they were brought to Babylon, all right, 22.24, Jeremiah. And as I live, saith the Lord, though Kona, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now, Kona is the contraction off of Jeconiah, J-E-C-O-N, okay? All right, it's the same guy. You with me? Hold on to Jeremiah. Run to 1 Chronicles 3. You guys think that the genealogy in 1 Chronicles is boring, so we just skip it. You should not think it's boring. You should be reading it because of stuff like this. Is that you again? Okay, 1 Chronicles 3. Look at verse 16. The sons of Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, his son, Zedekiah, his son. You see, so he's the descendant of who? Jehoiakim. Come back to Jeremiah 23, verse 24. And I, as I live, saith the Lord through Kona, the son of Jehoiakim. So Jeconiah, king of Judah, where the signet upon his, my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. 
And I will give thee into the hands of them that seek thy life, and into the hands of them whose face thou fearest, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And that's exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar sacks Jerusalem three times. Daniel chapter number one, the Lord gave them, gave Israel to Nebuchadnezzar, and off they go. Now watch verse 26. And I will cast thee out, and thy mother that bare thee into the another country, where ye were not born, and there shall ye die. But to the land whereunto they desire to return, thither shall they not return. Is this man, well, Jeconiah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherewith is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out? He and his seed are cast into the land which they knew not. All those questions, see? Verse 29. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. Now watch. For no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. So what did, he, what did the Lord just say to Jeconias? None of your descendants are sitting on the throne of David and ruling over Judah. Now go back to Matthew 1. When he says childless there, he's not saying the guy can't have any kids. Because obviously, Matthew chapter 1, he had kids. Because who do we get out of his kids? Joseph, the husband of Mary. But what's the problem with old Joe? What's the edict of the Lord? What's the declaration? He can't be king. Nobody of, of Joseph's descendants can sit on the throne. So what does that mean? That means Jesus Christ, if he was the natural child of Joseph, would never be king, couldn't be king, see. But Joseph is who? He's the stepdad of the, of the Savior, but what does, how does society look? How does the world look at the genealogy, see? Believers, we look at it different. We catch that, but the world doesn't catch Jeconiah being cursed, see? The Jeconiah, what do they see? They say, the, the, the leaders of Israel, oh, this is, he's Joseph's boy, the carpenter. See, it's not a good thing. See, the world out there, what are they looking for? Well, he's Joseph's son, so he's right in line, see. But for you and I, Bible believers, we come in, and what do we say? No, Jeconiah, so he is not the father of. Rather, he's the husband of Mary, and that's it. Now, in Mary's genealogy, in Luke 3, you go over there, and you see that her genealogy runs through Nathan, David's son. So the seed of the woman, which becomes the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, out of Jacob becomes the Lord Jesus Christ. He's got a natural claim to the throne. But in Matthew, what's his claim? His claim is really through Joseph. But as the world sees it, see, as Israel would look at it, how does Israel look at it? He's Joseph's boy. So he's got a claim through Jeconias and Solomon. And yet in Scripture, what did the Lord do? We're going to protect the virgin birth way back here before Babylon, and we're going to not have it go here. We're going to go here. See, it's that kind of stuff that's very intriguing as you look through this. Okay, chapter 2. 
I think I gave you chapter 1, chapter 2. Chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1, you've got the, the wise men. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in those days Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Here's a bunch of Gentiles. They've been influenced by Daniel and Babylon over, the, over their life, over their history. The Magi, a big group of, and they're looking and they're studying and they see the star. They understand what's going on. They believe in the, in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Daniel. They believe it. They're sitting there and you know what they do? They roll into town and they don't say, where's baby Jesus? They say what? Where's king of the Jews? Why? That's what Matthew's all about. That's who they're looking for. You start reading, you just keep reading there, the, the thing about the star and the prophecy and all of, okay, all of this, what do they do? <laughs> they're looking for the king. They're not looking for a baby. That's why down there in verse 11, and when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. They're not looking for a baby in a manger. They're looking for what? The king. Where is he? Well, he's not in Bethlehem anymore. We're down here. By the way, they bring him what? They bring him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold, that's a kingly identification. Frankincense. That's the, that's the, 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 the priestly scent, incense. Myrrh. Myrrh is what they, they come along. And, and that, by the way, myrrh is the suffering prophet. So you got king, priest, and prophet. But myrrh is what they embalm the bodies in and use in the burial system, uh, stuff. And what do we have? We've got all of this going on here. And it starts with the pronouncement of where is the king of Jews, of the Jews. And that's what Matthew is going to do. By the way, verse 13 and following, they flee to Egypt. How did they get to Egypt? They got gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They just got wealthy real quick. And they're able to have the, the, the ability to now move and protect. Then you come to chapter 3. And now here's old John the Baptist, old JB. Here he is. He's on scene now. And what's he doing? Verse 1. In, the days come, in, in those days came John the Baptist. By the way, John the Baptist is, is the Lord's cousin, six months older than him. He's come preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And what does John begin to do? He says, Repent for the what? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you know what begins to happen? Now we've got this kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God issue coming in and being pronounced and being preached and being taught and being looked at. And it's John that says, We've got to make way. Here comes the Lord. Here comes the King. Here comes the Messiah. Here he comes. And I'm baptizing down here to to make him manifest and to show him off to Israel and to identify him for Israel. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom. By the way, the kingdom of heaven occurs only in the book of Matthew. 33 times. It's Matthew's term that he uses to describe the literal, physical, visible, earthly reign of Christ in his kingdom. But Matthew also uses the term kingdom of God. 
the kingdom of God, specifically during the earthly ministry of Christ, is a reference to the same thing as the kingdom of heaven. The physical, literal, physical, visible, earthly reign of Christ in the earth. They are not distinctive of each other. Now, it is with Paul, you go over to Romans 14, that now he makes a spiritual distinction with them. In Matthew here, what are they? They are the same. You go back there to Daniel 2, 44 and 40. Just let's go back there. We're talking about it. Daniel 2. <clears throat> and when it's noon, we'll be done. And then we'll just pick up and carry on. Daniel 2, verse 44. Daniel is giving Nebuchadnezzar the the interpretation of his image in the dream. And he says, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So the God of heaven is setting up a what? A kingdom. So couldn't you call that the kingdom of God? Yes. He's setting it up. But also, he's the God of heaven. So could you not also say it's the kingdom of heaven? Yes, because he's setting it up. So in the other gospel writers, by the way, <laughs> so the time when, so the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is de- describing the literal, physical, visible, earthly reign of Christ. The kingdom of God in and during the earthly ministry is referencing the same thing. The time when God of heaven is going to set up his kingdom on the earth. Generally speaking, the kingdom of God refers to that moral and righteous and spiritual kingdom, and that's fine, but that is involving the earthly reign of Christ. The other gospel writers, Luke, Mark, use kingdom of God because the two terms are synonymous in reference to the earthly ministry of Christ. And the reason for that is because in the millennial kingdom, they're both existing on the earth at the same time. But it's not a kingdom of heaven over here and the kingdom of God over here. What are they? Same thing. Follow that? So don't let all that get tripped up on you, okay? Because what's going to happen? What are we preaching? Repent for the kingdom is what? At hand. And then we have the voice. Go back to Matthew 3. Sorry, Matthew 3. We have a voice. We have a crier in the wilderness. A voice heard from heaven. Come down to, you're in chapter 3. Look down there at verse 17. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here's the proclamation of God the Father to the audience of the Israel, of the nation, of what? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. See, This is my beloved son in whom I am. Luke 3, he says, thou art my beloved son. He's, now he's talking right to the Lord as son of man. You're my guy. You're my kid. You're my son. Got differences here. So we have a voice proclamation. The baptism, the First, we have a heavenly voice, John the Baptist, the Father speaking through him. By the way, come over to chapter 17. Chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 5. Chapter 17, verse 5. 
While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Now, where are we at in Matthew 17? We're in the Mount Transfiguration. He's been brought out into a, the future kingdom. So we have another voice from heaven. And what's that voice confirming? <laughs> Same thing. This is my beloved son. See. Chapter 16. Well, uh, chapter 27. Run over there. Chapter 27. And look at verse 54. This is the cross. The veil in the temple was rent, verse 54, now in the centurion. And they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done. They feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Isn't that interesting? A governmental official, and what does he say? This was. Why? He's, de he's dying. He's dead. He's going to be buried and rose again the third day here. So we've got some declarations here. So when you come back to chapter 3, the issue of John baptizing Christ wasn't because the Lord needed it, but the Lord did need it. Because what is he? He's the king. He's the rightful ruler. He's got the genealogy to prove it. And he's going to declare some things now, starting in chapter 4, that are going to come in now, and there's going to be a declaration of him being Israel's Messiah, but Israel's king. So chapter 4, you've got the tempting, the testing here. And that's designed is to show, and, and again, the, the, the temptation, he'll, he'll say the answer there, like in verse uh, 4, but he answered and said, it is written. He always goes back to the word of God. He always goes back to what the word says in answering the temptation and so forth. And again, it's to show him to be the son of God, the son of man, to be Messiah. So there's a setting up. Now look in 4, 12, chapter 4, verse 12. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. So from Matthew 4, verse 12, he leaves to go into Galilee. Now come over to chapter 19 and verse 1. Chapter 19 and verse 1 of Matthew. 19, 1. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Now, so from 4.12 to 19.1, we have his Galilean ministry. He's in Galilee. He's up north. You come back there to chapter 4, he's up north to fulfill and to accomplish Isaiah 9, Isaiah 8. He's up there getting the little flock of staff. He's getting the leadership together. The, the 11 of the 12 apostles are from Galilee. The one apostle, Judas Iscariot, is from Jerusalem. And he gets them all together, and he's out doing. Now, chapter 5, you have the Sermon on the Mount. And you have now in 5, 6, and 7 a proclamation of the... The king. Here's what the king does. Notice 5.1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Look at the scene. 
mountain in prophetic scripture, unless it's designated as an earthly, literal, physical mountain, is usually, nine out of ten times, the other one is that issue of a physical geographical location, is a reference to nations, to a kingdom. So what you have pictured, he's up on a mountain, but what do you have pictured? He's set. You have the king sitting in his kingdom, and he's going to open his mouth and taught them saying, and he gives them the Beatitudes, and then in chapter 6 he gives them more, and in chapter 7 he gives them more, and what you're reading in chapter 6, 7, and 8 is here is the, the, uh, here is the, 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 the spontaneous lifestyle of that kingdom believer, that kingdom saint. Here's how the little flock and the, and the true Israel of God is going to behave. Here's what they're going to do. Look at 633. Matthew 6, verse 33. Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The all things, start back up there, the things that, well, verse 32, for, all, for after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the what? The kingdom of God. What is that believer going to do? He isn't going to worry about clothes. He isn't going to worry about eating. He ain't worried about the things that the Gentiles worried about. What's he seeking first? The kingdom of God. When I get in the kingdom, what do I get? I get all of that a uh, hundredfold. <laughs> I get, why? So what is the attitude? What's the, the spontaneous living isn't for myself. It's for who? It's for the others. Okay? And he's going to articulate that out to them. Chapter 7, verse 28. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Isn't that interesting? He's teaching with what? The authority. Why? He's the king of Israel. The authority lies with the king, and he's demonstrating his kingly authority. By the way, it's in Matthew 6 that we get the quote-unquote so-called Lord's Prayer. John 17 is the real Lord's Prayer, just FYI. And what does he say? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Where's the king sitting today? He's on exile in heaven. What are they praying for? Come on back, baby. It's time to get it started. Why? Because the king is ready. He's here. He's ready. Chapter 8. Chapter 8 and chapter 9. He comes down off that mountain, 8-1, and when he had come down from the mountain, great multitude followed him. And he begins to heal, and he begins to do miracles. There's 12 of them, six in each chapter. That's going to prove, validate his authority of what he just taught them and preached in chapter 5, 6, and 7. And what that tells you is how miracles are designed to work in the Gospels. They are designed to validate the message. Luke 8, verse 1, you write it down, you go read it. He was preaching and showing the things of the kingdom. What did he do? He preached, I am the king. Here it is. And then he goes down here and he does 6 and 8 and 6 and 8, and he proves that he is the Messiah. He is the king. So the miracles are designed to do what? Authenticate who he said he is. Chapters 10, 11, and 12, you see the response of unbelief from the nation. 
And he has, again, he's demonstrated that he is the greater. Actually, look at chapter 12. <laughs> chapter 12, verse 6. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. Isn't that interesting? Chapter, 40, uh, chapter 12, verse 41, the end of the verse. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here, Jon the prophet. So greater than the temple, there's the priest. The, Jonah, there's the prophet with Nineveh. Verse 42, the end of it, and a greater than Solomon is here. There's the king. He's proved that he is the greater king, priest, and prophet. And what did they do? They rejected him. So in 1215, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him and healed them all and charged them that they should not make him known over and over. You know what he says? He'll do a little healing, and he'll say, now go, don't, don't tell anybody. Don't tell. Why? Because it's unbelief that he's rooting out. So in chapter 13, oh, got to love chapter 13. Here's the parables, baby. Parables of the mysteries of the kingdom. Oh, look at that. Woo. You're, you're a dumb thump idiot. I'm sorry. I love you all in the Lord. But if you think the parables are something that he's just a smooth teacher and he's rocking and, man, he's just getting it where everybody learns, you don't read a verse in your life then. Because in 13 to the end, he starts teaching in parables for a very specific reason. Look at verse 10, 13, 10. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? Ain't that the question? What, now, what modern-day Christianity, Christian dumb, D-U-M-B says, is that a parable is a, is a way of teaching to make all understand, but it's not what Scripture says. Look at the next verse, verse 11. He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you. Now, who would the you be? The disciples, the believing remnant. It is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them, who? The unbelieving nation. It is what? Not given. So then in chapter 13, he takes a, a, two or three of the parables, gives them to them, then he explains them so they can understand how to understand the parable. And he does that. So the parables weren't designed so that everybody would get a message. Woo, kumbaya. It was so that the unbelievers didn't get it and the believers understood it. So the mysteries of the kingdom, the peril and the, all that stuff, has nothing to do with what the modern-day stupidity teaches. It has to do with what? The little flock understanding the things that are going to be happening in that kingdom and the unbelievers going, wow, wasn't that such a wonderful message today? It was so heartwarming. And they had no clue what he's talking about. You see, the Lord didn't come to, to unite. He came to divide. He came to come in and say, hey, mom against uh, father against son and daughter, mom, husband and wife. Why? Because we need, it is crunch time now. Why? Because the kingdom is at hand. It's time to get off the fence post and pick a side. Let's go. And he lays it out. He begins the, the parables in Matthew. And again, the rest of the book are designed to picture his deity but also him as king of the Jews. And that's what they're doing. So when you read them, by the way, you're in Matthew 13, right? Um, um, I went too far here. Look over at, um, oh, man, boy, my mind just went. 
Okay, look at verse 36, 1336. Then Jesus sent the multitudes away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Okay, so you go back and he gives the tares of the field there in verse 24 and following. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the who? So who is he? Who is this guy? He's the son of man, isn't he? So when I see or read anything about a guy sowing a seed, who do I know it is? There's no guessing here. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that soweth them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Do you have any doubt who they are? So later on, when he talks about the reapers reaping, I don't know, what is that? No, it's right there. He just told them. Who is it? It's the angels. I don't need the book of the Revelation to tell me that the angels are reaping the harvest. He just told me, see. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all that things that offend and them which do iniquity. Well, look at that. He's going he's to, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There's Daniel and his three buddies. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father who hath ears to hear, let him hear. That's the issue. We got a timeline set up here. Okay, now, real quickly, because we've got a couple minutes, come over to chapter 16. Because there's something here. So, Matthew, he's the king. How do you know it? He's going to make some declarations. He's going to do some miracles to back that up. And then he's going to turn to that believing remnant, that little flock, and begin to teach them. And literally from, from 13 to the end, he's getting them ready for the 70th week of Daniel. He's getting them ready for the second coming. And he begins to literally, you go in, and he begins to teach them things. Chapter 16, look at verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. When does he start talking about Calvary? Not in chapter 4 when he begins his earthly ministry, public ministry. It's down now after he's made his declarations of being king of the Jews, after he's made the declarations of here's what was going to happen in the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom for that believing remnant. And he, that verse is clear. From that time forth, what? Began, G that's going to line up with Mark 8, with Luke 9, and they go, boom, boom, boom. And you know what? Then Peter took him. And began to love on him and say, praise the Lord, you're dying for our sins. No, Peter looked at him and said, uh-uh, man, nobody's touching you. I got your six. We're going to take care of it. And he rebukes the Lord. And the Lord looks over at Peter and says, Pete, Satan, get behind me because you know what you're trusting? You're trusting the things of men more than the things of God. Peter was after trusting the, his own resources to get the job done rather than understanding that what the Lord was doing was fulfilling Scripture. And because the word of God said he's got to go do this, is what? Peter said, no, -uh, man, let's go. We're fighting time, see. Peter had a little walk of, of flesh going on. By the way, they don't understand it. 
In each of the Gospels, three times the Lord tells them, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. And you know what they do? I don't get it. No, 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 no. Come over to John. You're looking at me like I'm goofy. Maybe I am. Look at John 20. Look at John 20, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, man, it's time to quit. You think she'll give me five? No, because it'll be 10, right? John 20. John 20, we got the resurrection day. Look at verse 9. Simon Peter, John run up. The ladies have been up there. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. He told them three times he was doing it. And they still didn't understand it. It's not till Luke 24 that you understand that after all of this, then he opens their understanding and they get it. In the crucifixion, real quick, just so you see Paul, and this is really what I was hoping to get to. If you, if you come back with me to tw- uh, chapter 27, Matthew 27, and get 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll just show you this one, and then we'll be done. For Matthew 26, Matthew 27, 11, 27, 11, with 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, 13. Matthew 27, 11. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, by the way, this is Pilate, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. Now look at 1 Timothy 6 in verse 13. I give thee charge, and to thee is Timothy, to be the man of God, in sight of God who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pilate witnessed a good confession. Ain't that interesting? Paul picks up on a little scene with Pilate, and he says that was a good confession. You know what the good confession was? Thou sayest. You said it. I am who you just said I was. He do, Paul does that. You're in 1 Timothy 6. By the way, it's in Matthew 27, verse 54, that we find out that he was buried in the tomb of a rich man. He was buried in the tomb of the rich. The centurion, a Roman governmental official, soldier of Rome, a Gentile, he says, you know what? He's the son of God. He's the son of God. You see, it's in Matthew where those proclamations are made. 1 Timothy 6, verse 14, Paul continues, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And there's a connection. Paul doesn't say we follow Jesus Christ as Israel's Messiah. He says, by the way, he does say he was born of the seed of Abraham, Romans 1. I'm sorry, of David. Paul makes those references, those connections. Why? Because he's the one that's going to fulfill and accomplish the plan of the Father in Israel, in the earth, as what? As king. 
And that's what Matthew is all about. Matthew just lays it in, lays it in, lays it in. You take the list that I gave you on the handout there, and you can go look at those, and you can begin to see that at every turn, the king, the king, the king. And that's what Matthew's teaching and putting forth. Paul picks up on those little things, and he says, yep, he was seed of David. He was resurrected according to my gospel, but he's of the seed of David. You know what Paul's saying? The God of the Son that came, the Messiah, the Christ of Israel that came and fulfilled all of the scriptures for Israel is the same one now that we're looking for, that blessed hope and a great appearing of the great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Same God. We just preach Christ now how? According to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret but is now made manifest. The Gospels are making manifest the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the earthly ministry, the prophetic scriptures. Paul picks that up and says, nope, we're going this way now because it's all brand new. That's why it's for our learning. We just did Matthew, and I'm five minutes over, and wait till we do Mark. <laughs> okay? Dearly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word and for the look into it, for the continuity of it, and for the awesome port portrayal of our Savior. In your son, in your name we pray, amen.